Hello and welcome. I am Rachel. I'm Peter. And this is All, All for, for Animals. animals. <laughs> Thank you for joining us again for another episode, everybody. This is going to be a fun little topic. Rachel is the ringleader here. So Rachel, go ahead and take over it and tell um, listeners what we'll be talking about today. Yes, this week we are keeping it a little more light and fluffy. So this week we are going to be discussing misunderstood animals. And that would be any critter that you look at or think about and it immediately sparks fear or terror or, I mean, even anger for some people. And we'll get to that. Or just like stress. Yes, just bad things. They are always right. associated with very bad things. But the mis- they're, they're misunderstood because all of the animals that we're going to talk about today actually serve wonderful purposes to not only humans, but the entire environment. So the first um, species that we are going to talk about today is bats. And I don't know about you, Peter, but I absolutely frigging love bats. Oh, yeah. And they're super cute. They Can we talk are. talk about that for a minute? <laughs> they're so cute up close. I know. So many people think they look creepy, but I think they are adorable. I think it relates back to the whole, like, Halloween vibe. I guess so. Pop- so. That's what pops in my head first. But they're so damn cute. The way they'll eat fruit and shit. Oh, my God. It's so cute. Yes. <laughs> in fact, one of the tattoos that is going to be on my to-do list very shortly here is going to be an awesome little bat that I've been drawing for like ever. So I love them a lot. Nice. So do you have any idea about how many species of bats there are? I'm just curious. I have no idea. I'm not even going to give you a guess. Okay. <laughs> there are over 1,300 species of bat. Oh my goodness. I did not know that. I I kind of just no, thought it was either. a handful of species. Wow. Their scientific yeah, no name is chirop or let's see here chiroptera which means hand wing in greek because their hand or their wings look like an overstretched hand with four long fingers and a thumb mm, makes sense Fair. yep <laughs> there are two main types of bats they are megabats and microbats and most bats are in the micro group the microbats use echolocation to navigate caves and fly after dark, and they tend to be more active after dark. And megabats, on the other hand, don't echolocate. Their eyes are bigger, ears are smaller, and their sense of smell is stronger. And now I'm going to go ahead and quickly explain echolocation for anybody who is not aware. It is a system that allows bats to locate objects using sound waves. They echolocate by making a high-pitched sound that travels until it hits an object and bounces back to them. That echo tells them the object's size and about how far away it is. So microbats, the ones that do echolocate, they feed on insects, with the only exception being the vampire bat. And megabats are the ones that you seem to favor, Peter, because they are the ones that eat fa- uh, eat fruit, nectar, and pollen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like you see those videos online, and it's like a bat like the size of my torso just yeah. eating a banana. It's absolutely adorable. <laughs> That's probably a flying fox, okay. and I love them. They are gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, they are also, bats are the only mammal in the world that can fly. And I just think they're so unique that that is part of what makes them so special to me is there's not really much out there that's like them. (laughs) 
No, yeah, they're very, very unique. It's funny also how they echolocate, right? And they're they're air dwellers for the most part in cave cave dwellers as well. (laughs) And then you've got what is it whales, deep sea animals that also echolocate. So it's like just worlds apart, but same way of getting around, and that's just. Yeah. They're very unique for that. Yeah. Absolutely. I love it. It's kind of almost like the the relationship with like penguins and birds that can fly. Penguins look like they're flying underwater, but they can't fly in the air. And then other birds, right. they fly through the air, but can't swim and or at least can't swim like fully submerged underwater. Right. <laughs> so I like the relationship between the air and water. It's cool. Yeah. Right. So I think a lot of the bad rap that bats get is honestly mostly just kind of a hatchet job by movies, mostly like vampire movies where the the vampire dissolves into a puff of bats and then they all get like caught up in the lady's hair. And and that that thought of that, even though I love bats. That just stressed me out just thinking about it. So right there, it gives you a very like visceral reaction. So that could maybe make me understand why some people would be a little afraid of them. And the idea that they like swarm, you know, I I wouldn't particularly like being ambushed by a horde of bats. (laughs) So I think that's part of it. Yeah. But for me, I love the sounds that they make. And I I think that their wings are just like the coolest thing ever because there isn't anything else like it. And it literally is like a hand that's stretched out enough to be a wing. And I mean, it doesn't get cooler or more badass than that. And sure. I just I, I, I can't really explain it more than that. But I will also say there may be. Something I can point to from my childhood, and that is the movie Fern Gully. And I don't know if you've seen that. Have you? I, no, I haven't. Oh, we have to watch it sometime because I swear to God, that movie, it shaped my childhood. And the sure. main character is a bat voiced by Robin Williams, of course. And his name is Batty. Mm-hmm. And he escaped from like a, a an animal testing lab. And he's like really wacky because of all of the experiments that have done they've that the people have done on him. And it's kind of an ode to protecting and saving our environment and the animals in it. And it's like the most adorable little animated movie. And I I have loved Batty ever ever since. So it's probably because of him. <laughs> nice. So do you have any other opinion on why bats are amazing? Well, I mean, how do they play into our ecosystem, oh, right? Sure. Because Absolutely. I think that's what matters. I think that's what matters more than anything. It's not about how humans feel about them; it's how they coexist on this planet. Yes. So, the, like I said before, the microbats feed on insects exclusively, except for the only exception is the vampire bat that feeds on blood. Right. So, the microbats feeding on all of those insects makes them extremely useful to us humans for not only our comfort in ridding us of a lot of little bloodsuckers like mosquitoes and the potential diseases that they carry along with them, but also by protecting our crops because a lot of the the animal, or I'm sorry, a lot of the buggies that they eat can also destroy some of our plants that we need in order to 
have food and everything. So yes. bats eat literally millions of bugs every single night during the warmer months. So they're fantastic for controlling all Population of our pests. control. Yes. Absolutely. But yep. even the mega bats, i.e. the fruit, pollen, and nectar bats, when they are eating the fruits and pollen and nectar, they are also majorly contributing to pollination for the plants all right, around was, them. Uh, that's what I was about to ask. Yeah. Okay. And they also help to distribute those plants with the seeds that they then poop out every time they eat fruit. Sure. And in fact, sure. I found an interesting little fact here. Over 500 plant species, including mangoes, bananas, and avocados, actually depend upon bats for their pollination. So we have them to thank for things like the mangoes and bananas in our smoothies and the avocados we put on our toast. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. I thought that was really cool because, to be honest, I knew that fruit bats did help with pollination, but I didn't realize that they were actually integral to the whole process for so many Right, yeah, species. like not to that level. It's yeah. Just... So I have actually another just kind of interesting fact. It doesn't really play into what makes them misunderstood, but I just thought this was kind of endearing, and that is that all bats, whether they eat uh, bugs or fruit, roost by hanging upside down during the day. And what's interesting yes. about that is scientists still aren't entirely sure why that is, which I didn't realize. I thought they kind of just knew. But there is actually one prevailing theory. Bats have to fall into flight, so they can't take off like a bird. So hanging upside down makes for an easy and speedy escape in the case of an emergency. Ah, yeah, they just do a drop and go, right? Exactly. <laughs> I'll get behind that theory. It makes yeah. sense in my head. Yes. <laughs> I think that's really cool. And I also think it's just like one of those little endearing quirks that just makes them more special. Right. Now, I do have just a little bit of a cautionary tale here. And that is, I feel I should mention that just because bats are very helpful to our environment and shouldn't be necessarily feared, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should attempt to touch any bat that you may find. Mostly because... Bats are really scared of people. So if you find one that is easily accessible to you, there's a good chance he's probably sick. And you don't want to potentially expose yourself to any kind of nasty parasites or diseases from him. Sure. Right. And I also need to mention that bats can carry rabies, which is always fatal if it uh, presents symptoms and there isn't a way to test an animal for it without killing them to test their brain. But the necropsy. Yes. But the wonderful news, and this is something that I learned while I was doing this research. I did not know this. The great news is that only about one half of a percent of bats in the wild have rabies. So the risk of rabies specifically is not nearly as, as high as at least I was kind of led to believe my whole life. And if you have been exposed to a rabies positive animal of any kind, obviously you have to receive the post-exposure prophylactic or PEP treatment, which usually consists of one dose of rabies immunoglobulin, which is essentially a concentrated dose of rabies antibodies to help your body fight off the virus, as well as four doses of rabies vaccine given over a period of two weeks. And apparently that treatment is extremely effective in preventing rabies, as in 
nearly perfectly effective when administered according to the guidelines set aside by the CDC. Nice. So I just thought that was cool. I didn't know that there was like right. any kind of medication that was that effective. <laughs> so, and I love too that, you know, I kind of always grew up with that notion that anytime you see a bat, they are more than likely going to be rabid. Right. And I like being able to kind of dispel that as mostly a myth that it's actually pretty rare for most wild bats to have rabies and even more reason not to fear them. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that was honestly a really, really good misunderstood animal to start with. And I'm curious to hear what the next one is. All right. So our next misunderstood animal is going to be the humble shark. Did I just strike fear in your heart? Not at all. Oh. Um, I kind of know. <laughs> I think I kind of know enough about that. Sharks are kind of peaceful creatures. They look scary as shit. Yes. I, I, there's, there's some sort of a phobia. I can't remember what it's called, but like I have it where it's like looking at like pictures of like open water or being in open water scare the shit out of me oh okay. so um that doesn't help it's not sharks themselves it's just sea life altogether it's, it's more of like the unknown i was gonna say i can totally understand that because there is so much that we don't know about our oceans that i mean I mean you're so vulnerable yeah and you have vulnerability yeah so you won't catch me scuba diving <laughs> absolutely not at all but uh, yeah, so back to back to sharks. Um, I think this was kind of an obvious one. Yes. Um, again, kind of what we were talking about with bats, how in the media, Jaws is a great example. Meg. Yes. And they're great movies, but um, they, uh, they definitely create this kind of stigma for what sharks actually behave like. Actually, it's ironic that you bring up Jaws. I mean, how can you talk about sharks without bringing up Jaws, of course, but... All of my research seems to indicate that Jaws is majorly responsible for a lot of the hysteria that comes from yeah. seeing sharks. Well, and after that movie, this is one fact I know, and I don't know it too well. Like, it's, it's a broad statistic, so I don't know the actual number, but there were more reported killings of sharks you know like humans killing sharks yes after jaws and i think that that speaks volume it, to... it like came, became an industry after jaws right it wasn't just eating shark fin soup anymore it was killing to protect which again i think is why well the media and these movies they make are great just creating this hysteria it's almost a lie a mistruth and when you say it over and over so many times it becomes true and then creates this stigma. Well, and I mean, the shark in Jaws is literally just like an allegory for any other type of serial killer. It just so happens that this one happens to right. be a shark. Right, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So the whole point of the movie is that this shark is different from the others. The other sharks wouldn't have, you know, sought out all of those people and deliberately eaten them. But this Jaws, or this shark, Jaws, he did. And that was what made him so scary. But people kind of forgot that was the message along the way. And it translated from this particular shark into to all, all sharks. sharks. In right, the generalization <laughs> yes. is there. Well, and, and even in even in Finding Nemo, yes. I remember that scene where like they're trying to be vegetarian or whatever. Yes, and Dory <laughs> and gets then a nosebleed. They nose smell bleed. Dory's blood <laughs> and they and they lose their shit. So again, with that whole Kind of creating this generalization of what we think sharks behave like. Yeah. So I have a few fun statistics that demonstrate just how unlikely it is for a person 
to be bitten by a shark. You are 30 times more likely to be struck by lightning than to be bitten by a shark. You're also more likely to die while taking a selfie or from being bitten by a New Yorker, a a human being in New York. (laughs) (laughs) There was another one I heard about that. It's like you're more likely to get killed by a falling coconut than killed by a shark. Yes, I I read that that too. Way back in the day. Did you? Okay, cool. I'm not crazy. Yes. I thought I remember that correctly. Now, I didn't verify that one in my research here. So if it winds up not being true and is just a silly way of illustrating the point, Mm -hmm. let me live in ignorance. I like that. Yeah, right. (laughs) Absolutely. There was another one like you're more likely to get killed crushed by a vending machine than killed by a shark. Oh, I like that too. Yeah. So again, I don't know the true, like how true those are, but again, just like, don't tell me if it's not because I want to go around saying Yeah. (laughs) So. So one of my other um, myths that I'm going to go ahead and dispel here is that like the movie Jaws, that sharks enjoy hunting people. Again, Jaws was scary because... Most sharks actually have no interest in people. So they, if they do bite a person, it's almost always a case of mistaken identity. Right. They thought you looked like one of their prey animals and they took a bite and then they wanted to spit you right back out because, you know, we're, we're not a tasty, delicious seal. We're just a disgusting, gross human. And that's why most shark bites don't end in the person actually being eaten. Just a chomp. (laughs) Right. So I have some facts about uh, just sharks in general to make them a little more... Understood. A little more than just, yeah, a little more than just the Scary Jaws movie. Go ahead. There are about 520 species of sharks, and only about a dozen species pose any actual threat to humans. So that's a pretty good ratio as far as, you know, which ones are dangerous and which ones pose absolutely no threat to us at all. And there's actually three species that are responsible for almost all shark uh, shark bite fatalities and they well actually i'm gonna ask do you know what they are i'm gonna guess okay okay i'm gonna guess the great white yep i mean i'm gonna guess the hammerhead shark no actually really nope i don't know sharks like that either <laughs> so but like <laughs> so i'm just kind of guessing the ones i know but like when i think of a shark i think like the smaller ones that you could keep in like an expensive home aquarium okay i don't think of these massive saltwater sharks okay. so I can even give you another guess, honestly. All right, so. I know that, like, in history that the killer whales, the orcas, they'll kill sharks before a shark will kill them. Yeah. I think. Like I said, don't quote me on that, but. Yeah, they will. So almost all shark fatalities are caused by the great white, the tiger shark, or the bull shark. Mm -hmm. And then they are actually referred to as cartilaginous fish. Try saying that five times fast because I promise you'll fail. (laughs) Most of their skeleton consists of cartilage instead of bone. And the only bones in their skeleton are their teeth. That's it. Hmm. Interesting. And then that actually got me a little bit down a research hole because the next question that I found posed on this site that I was doing my research on was, have you ever wondered why shark teeth are so common as like keepsakes and i hadn't actually thought about it before but they are incredibly common like they are in literally every museum necklaces bracelets yeah yeah, earrings all that shit absolutely so do you know why that is no 
but I'm waiting for you to tell me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sharks never stop producing teeth. So when one of their teeth breaks or gets worn down, it just falls out and it's replaced by another one. So a single shark can produce anywhere from 20 to 40,000 teeth in its lifetime. Well, I was going to say, the lifespan of a shark's outrageous. I mean, there's like three, 400-year-old sharks swimming around. So. so that actually, I found out that because of that number, the 20 to 40,000 teeth per shark, sh- uh, shark teeth are not only a very common fossilized find they are the most common type of fossil because of that yeah i figured yeah that's crazy yes and i mean i'm pretty sure most people know too that sharks are the oldest animals or one of the oldest animals on earth the sharks have have existed longer than trees Uh, actually have they yeah, I know that one to be true. I've been waiting to say that the whole damn episode. So <laughs> I know it's the one oh. thing I know. It's the one thing I know about sharks is yes, some species of sharks have actually been on this earth, on this planet, longer than trees, which is really hard to wrap your mind around. Okay, I just looked it up too. Yes. Yeah. So they've been around for about four hundred fifty million years, and they've evolved. A lot of them have evolved very little in that time. Right. So I have these statistics here, too, of how many sharks are killed by humans every year. And that is over 100 million sharks being killed by humans every single year. And that's causing a gigantic decline in their populations. And the vast majority of that is what we were just talking about earlier. It's just caused by the hysteria where people feel like, The fewer sharks there are out in the water, the safer everyone is that's enjoying the water. Well, that... And that's just not true. And the growing popularity in shark fin soup. Well, sure. Yes, there is a lot of that that kind of fishing for sharks done as well. But the large, large numbers are usually caused by humans either deliberately killing them out of fear or also getting caught up in other fishing nets and things like that that are also affecting like dolphin populations stuff like that right right so we are far more lethal to sharks than they can ever be to us absolutely and sharks really do help in our they they help our environment so much more than I was aware of as well. Sharks, like wolves, are apex predators, which means they sit at the top of the food chain in their particular environment and maintain population control over the species below them. Without that population control, the ecosystem becomes completely overwhelmed with the prey species, depleting the food and resources in the areas, and completely destroying the environment around them. And this has already been noted in places like Yellowstone, where wolves were essentially uh, made extinct. And because of that, the prey animals, specifically the elk and rabbit species, have gone absolutely bonkers. And it's completely decimating their grasslands and things like that. So it happens in the ocean, too, without shark. Mm. They also play a vital role in reducing greenhouse gases that contribute to climate change by encouraging movement of sea turtles. Mm. They, they like frighten the sea turtles and make them move between multiple seagrass meadows, which I didn't even know it was a thing, but it seems so soothing. I'm just imagining like the, the grass just like flowing in the waves and I just want to watch it all day. (laughs) 
Um, so by intimidating the sea turtles and having them move between multiple different seagrass meadows, they prevent the meadows from being overgrazed. And those seagrass meadows are constantly absorbing very large amounts of carbon, preventing it then from being released into the atmosphere. Right. And my last fun fact about sharks, sharks actually absorb carbon into their own bodies as well. And whales do apparently as well. And I did not know that. I, I thought that their only contribution to our reducing our carbon footprint was getting those damn turtles to stop making a buffet out of one giant right. <laughs> seagrass right. meadow. But they actually hold on to a bunch of that as well and basically remove it from our atmosphere. Hmm. Interesting. That's really cool. Yeah, no kidding. So sharks, not only are they not, you know, vicious man hunters, they're also good for the environment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Debugging quite a few things today. Yeah. Yeah, so we've touched air, we've touched water. What's the next misunderstood animal on the Rasta? The next one is spiders. Pretty sure everybody just got the creepy crawlies. Did you get the creepy crawlies? I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of spiders in all honesty. Like, they're, I have definitely that, uh, gross. Like, my cats sometimes, they'll, like, see a spider crawling on the ground, and they'll, like, start playing with them and swatting them. I'm like, you're gross for that. <laughs> and then furthermore, at some point, they'll lean in and eat them. And I'm like, yeah, you're really gross ah, for that. It's like, yucky. good lord. Oh, God. But they don't have that stigma. They don't have that, ew, gross. You know, they don't, they don't think like us humans think. It's just another toy a cat says yeah over the years i became more and more okay with spiders like they're not my favorite they give me the heebie-jeebies um, i don't kill them in my house anymore because i would rather have the spiders in my house and all the other bugs that get caught up in their web yeah um but Absolutely. obviously i think even more than sharks spiders spiders and snakes really are what disgust more people in my opinion yeah. I mean, well and from what i see but yeah, let's talk about how, because they're obviously like very, very vital to to our environment um, and what they yes. do and kind of how they how they function and coexist on Earth. So the first thing I have written about them is pretty much exactly what you just said. As scary and intimidating as spiders may seem, most people can recognize that they provide humans with a really great source of pest control at the very least. And... Spiders' consumption of insects isn't only beneficial for, like, your house. They're also essential for our eco ecosystem as well. They eat bugs that, that destroy our crops, such as, like, aphids and caterpillars. According to spider expert Norman Platnick from the American Museum of Natural History, there would actually be famine without spiders because of the major effective job that they do in eliminating aphids and caterpillars from our food crops hmm. and as much as again kind of like the sharks as much as people tend to think spiders are always looking to bite people they really are not they don't seek them out we're not a food source to them insects are their food source so spiders only bite humans if they feel threatened and cornered and they don't have a way to escape or worse if they get crushed so like if you roll over them in your sleep or if they're in your shoe hiding out and you step on them when you go to put your shoes on that kind of thing that makes sense i think that might be part of what gives people the ooky spookies about spiders too is that it kind of feels like they're just lurking everywhere waiting for you 
And they're not. They're well, oblivious again, to how us. They're depict, how they're depicted in the media. And you know, what, what do we decorate for the spooky, creepy season? Fires yes. Everywhere. Yeah, so that definitely plays into it. And the bigger yeah. they are, the grosser they get, in my opinion. I mean, those tarantulas. <laughs> at some point, I'll own a tarantula just to help me get over the stigma that I have. Oh, really? Um, that's yeah. that's commitment. No, and from what I also know, tarantulas are, I mean, much less of a feeding routine than what I've got going on now. They're more of like a... Yeah, I, you don't handle them. It's more... They're very fragile, actually. It's more of like a look yeah. kind of thing, depending on what you're getting. But yeah, that's something I've I've considered in my head is like getting a tarantula to prove to myself that they're not nearly as scary as I like to think they are. Mm-hmm. So, especially in the U.S., the proportion of, of danger, I guess I should say, of lethal spiders species versus non-lethal is is 1000 to 1. So there are over 3000 species of spiders in the US alone, but only 3 of those species are potentially lethal. And that's also it's potentially lethal. It does not mean that any bite from them is going to automatically mean you're going to die. Um so those 3 species, any guesses? I know the wolf spider Am I right? Nope. Am I right? Wolf spider? You are Damn. not. <laughs> Any other guesses? No. Honestly, that's about all I know. I mean, I know there are some, but I can't tell you off the top of my head. It is the black widow, the brown recluse, and the hobo spider. I should have known two of those three. I've never even heard of the hobo <laughs> spider. I should have known the I'm given the to black understand widow. you probably haven't heard of the hobo spider because it's mostly in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, yeah, that'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and I have here too, uh, the wolf spider is one that is ven- venomous. So you weren't entirely wrong. It's just not one of the ones that is potentially lethal. Okay. So it can give you a nasty and somewhat painful bite, but it's not going to kill you. There's no, sure. no chance of that. Um, it, The black widow, brown recluse, and hobo spider, they can kill you. It is not necessarily a guarantee that they will like i have a story where my my grandfather my mom's dad who i call papa when he was younger he got a brown recluse bite on his big toe and he almost lost the toe and the only reason he was able to keep it was because when it was getting all like necrotic and everything where the tissue is like dying he was soaking it in bleach baths. Oh, Jesus Christ. And that saved his Ouch. toe. <laughs> yeah. Good Lord. Wow. Yeah. So I also wanted to define the difference between poisonous and venomous things. So things that hurt you by stinging or biting you are venomous. So that would make spiders venomous. And things that hurt you if you ingest them are poisonous. Right. Right. So, I knew that much. Yeah. So speaking of spider venom. It is very helpful to us for medication and research purposes. Spider yes. venoms target the nervous system, unlike snake venom, which actually targets the cardiovascular system. Um, so they're each very, very useful, but for very different things. Uh, researchers at the University of Queensland's Institute for Molecular Bioscience in Australia actually screened venom from 206 spiders looking for new compounds that would help to reduce especially chronic pain. Over 40% of the spiders that they were screening the venom from 
had at least one or more compounds that helped to block human pain by blocking nerve activity. The red, fr or I'm sorry, the orange fringed tarantula, speaking of tarantulas, had the most effective venom with great promise for developing a new, like, non-addictive form of painkillers. And there is a ton of research going on into spider venom for a treatment of a bunch of different other diseases as well, uh, in addition to the treatment for pain. Potential has been found for treating heart arrhythmias, neurodegenerative diseases like MS, epilepsy, cancer, and even erectile dysfunction. <laughs> mm, interesting. And uh, the venoms have also actually been found to hold antibacterial and antimalarial properties as well. So it could even be in our next uh, malaria medication. Interesting. And then I just kind of have something that's a little bit sweet about spiders, since they get such a bad rap, at least in the U.S. In ancient Chinese culture, spiders were called zimu, and I, I, I hope I'm saying that right otherwise known as happy insect. It was believed to be particularly lucky if they dropped down from the ceiling as if they were dropping down from heaven. I just thought that was really sweet. Interesting. There was I was watching with my nephew <laughs> not that long ago. I can't remember if it was a Disney or a Pixar. Well, Disney Pixar, same thing. Yeah. Um, but it was like this little short, and it was like of this little... Uh, spider trying to find his way back home and they made him cute and fuzzy and it was like the first time i've ever seen like an animated cartoon depict a spider in a cute a spider way as like a cute fluffy right yes. i was like oh that's cute so i think i know the short that you're talking about and i love it yeah with the, and he had the beautiful big eyes yes. and he was just yeah you just wanted it yes so there is some hope that yes. um, sometimes we can depict them it's all about how you want to see them and how you want them viewed but anyway, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Oh, you're just fine. To chime in with that. So the last thing that I have to kind of dispel some of the misunderstood myths about spiders is: Did you grow up hearing that myth that the average person swallows about eight spiders a year while they're sleeping? Yes, I have. I was going to ask you about. That. So I checked it out. This seems to be one of the most widespread myths out there, and it's completely false. Good. <laughs> Good. So I'm okay. I don't know that any spider would willingly just crawl down my throat. Exactly. Either. That's the whole thing. They don't want to be around us. They want to avoid us. So I looked it up. Well, they have that sense of fear. Yes, exactly. Because, you know, we humans, we flip out and we kill them when we see them. Right. So this myth actually started when a columnist for a computing magazine wrote an article in 1993 about a list of outlandish, quote unquote, facts that were circulating via email in an effort to show that people will believe anything they read online. So the columnist, she just made up some of her own ridiculous and completely untrue facts. See how, how much of our, her bullshit. Exactly. Believe. Including the one about <laughs> swallowing funny. eight spiders a year. And <laughs> it's actually, according to Snopes.com, in reality, extremely unlikely for a per person to swallow even one live spider while sleeping. Hmm. Interesting. And I mean, you gotta, you gotta give it to this columnist because she hit the nail on the freaking head since people are still believing that myth. I was going to say, yeah, you lied really yeah, well. Yeah, <laughs> 30 years later. <laughs> right, right. So now what's next on the roster for animals that just get a bad rap? 
Well, Peter, I picked this last one just for you. Let me guess. Opossum. Yes! Yes, we are going to talk about the opossum today. And do you want to start us off by telling everybody the biggest misconception? Yeah, I'll tell everyone why I'm so... I am so biased to this. I own um, an STO, a short-tailed opossum, uh, the smallest the smallest of all opossum possum species. <laughs> and he's just a cute little guy. He's um, very agile, very intelligent. He's like a smarter, less aloof hamster. He's adorable. With the jaw strength of a gnat. So we'll get into that right <laughs> right away. They're not like... W- Possum bites, actually my cage cleaner, I wanted her to get bit so bad because when he would jar his teeth, she'd get scared. And I'm like, <laughs> I would rather get bitten by my STO than any of my hedgehogs any day of the week. Yeah. They they lack upper, uh, they lack lower jaw strength. So they're not going to draw blood most of the time. You don't even notice you got bit. Yeah, I've been bitten by my hedgehog that I had in college, Tumbles. That was no freaking joke. That hurt. And he latched on. Oh, you know what? Sometime you come over, you put some peanut butter on your finger or some meat on your finger and let my Egyptian long-eared bite you um, and she'll shred skin. It's miserable. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and RSVP no to that, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, they say pass. Yeah. <laughs> so I have, I wanted to start off with like the very first misconception about opossums because possums and opossums are not the same thing. I'm glad we're touching base on this. Yes. yes. Possums are native to Australia, and opossums are native to North and South America. Yes. I didn't know that because I've always thought that you could use them interchangeably. No. So, yeah, exactly. Um, when I hear people say you have a possum, I, I don't really get into correcting. I don't really care enough. But technically, I have an opossum because the STOs are native to... Uh, rainforests in Brazil. Yeah, South America. Exactly, exactly. Whereas they 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 drop the O once we get to Australia. They say never mind. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, good. I'm glad that Those we could crazy kind Australians. of uh, yes differentiate <laughs> the two between possum and opossum. It's all geographic. Yeah, where you get the O or or the P. So poss or, or I'm sorry, God, I gotta correct myself already. Opossums are marsupials, of course, meaning that their babies are born underdeveloped and finishing finish developing within their mother's pouch, just like a a kangaroo or a koala. They right. are the only marsupials native to North America, and they have those adorable prehensile tails, meaning they can wrap it around. Uh, a branch or something while climbing and it helps steady them. Yep. It's an extra limb. I, yes. And so many people are like really eked out by their tails. And I think they are adorable. Oh, I love it. I do Rasputin too. will wrap his tail around my finger and just hang out there. I'll yeah. feed him some berries. It's pretty, it's well, badass to me. Well, and I had rats and mice when I was younger too. And I always loved their tail. It's so cute. Yeah, people get grossed out by the tail. It's never bothered me none. Yeah. Um, if anything, I feel like people get like more grossed out by like rat or like hamster testicles because they're yeah. just so like <laughs> big and disproportionate to the rest of their body. Yeah. Now I will before we move away from talking about marsupials and that possums and opossums are a marsupial. The STO, the short-tailed opossum, is actually, uh, to my knowledge, the only pouchless marsupial. Um, oh. To where the females actually don't have a pouch. They are still considered a uh, marsupial marsupial because the babies are born prematurely. And I believe there's 
12 nipples? Don't quote me again. Okay. I should probably know this. I'm, a, I'm not a breeder. I'm just a keeper of the STO. So I don't know much about their reproduction. I do know they don't have a pouch. and So the babies just hang Google on it, for they, dear life? Um, pretty much, yeah. So between the rear legs of the female, uh-huh. um, the nipples are there. And they start out about the size of a grain of rice. <gasps> oh, um, wow. And they hang on like like little beads or little like little beans as they grow. And then actually... Um, rather than hanging out inside of the pouch around week six, week seven, probably even more early on once they're done nursing all the time, they actually cling on to the backs and sides of the moms. Okay. So um, my buddy who produces and breeds um, the STOs, he'll send me these videos of this mom and she just looks so freaking done. And it's a mom <laughs> and she's got like 12 babies just hanging all over her oh my because goodness. they don't have a pouch to go to. So yeah, to my knowledge, they're the only pouchless marsupial. So they're kind of like one of those nature flukes. But I just wanted to touch base on that because it's just an interesting fact. That's really cool. That sets apart the STO from other possums and opossums. I love the fun fact. And I didn't even know that part. So thank you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So a lot of people mistakenly believe that opossums carry rabies. And while it is technically possible... For an opossum to carry the virus, their extraordinary immune systems and very low body temperature makes them extremely resistant to rabies. So they are not the rabies vector that people seem to think that they are, like a skunk or a raccoon. They are almost immune to it, which I thought is just Yeah, I was going to say, they have like a tolerance to to rabies. So it's actually quite contradictory, contradictory to what we think. Exactly. (laughs) So I have a few just kind of fun, interesting facts. Everybody kind of knows the the term playing possum. Opossums are hugely talented at playing dead, and they'll do so readily. If they are unable to run away from a threat, they'll just play dead to protect themselves. So just kind of a PSA if you happen to stumble upon a quote-unquote dead opossum in your yard, just leave him alone, because here in a few minutes or so, you'll probably see him get up and walk away all on his own. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, they are mostly solitary animals, yes. but they have also been known to have to share like a communal space or den with a bunch of other possums. And then they just kind of go deuces at the end of the day. And they're like, all right, peace out. <laughs> So there isn't really like a strong community with them, but they will share space. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. Right. So I don't know if you're familiar with the term carrion feeders. Mm -mm. I don't believe I am. Okay. Carrion refers to dead animals, like decaying dead animals. Okay. So critters like vultures and crows and opossums. Okay. Are, yes, scavengers and carrion feeders tend to be one and the same. Right. Uh, they are all carrion feeders and commonly eat things like roadkill and other dead, decaying animals uh, because of the fact that their amazing immune systems prevent them from catching deadly diseases that the other that the dead animals may have died from or carried. And carrion feeders do a lot of invisible underappreciated work in helping prevent the spread of those diseases to humans by eating all of those wild animal carcasses so that we humans don't wind up stumbling upon the the mess later on and infecting ourselves they play cleanup crew for us yes exactly 
So that's it actually does play a major role in keeping us humans safe. So they're lo- they're looking out for us. <laughs> and as if their disease resistance wasn't impressive enough, opossums are also immune to all venomous snakes except for the coral snake. And opossums will even hunt and eat venomous snakes if given the opportunity. So they're also helping manage any kind of like venomous snake populations for us. So hell yeah for that, because snakes are scary too. (laughs) And to my knowledge, they're all omnivores. I don't know that maybe some of the species lean more carnivoric. Um, I would say, I mean, Rasputin himself, he's split down 50-50. He'll he'll slam a super worm just to turn around and take a bite out of a blueberry. So yeah, they're, they're omnivores as well, but I think yeah. that less of, less of hunting and more of a scavenger. Um, they, in fact, the next thing I was going to say is that they are opportunistic omnivorous feeders, absolutely, which makes them incredibly adaptable. Right. And they're amazing at pest control too, because of their fondness for eating ticks and beetles and slugs and even snails. I don't know how they do that with the shell or if they like they, don't eat they, the shell, but they eat the rest of it. So the way their anatomy forms, the tip of their mouth doesn't have any sort of strength. The very, like their back molars, that's where they've got that like shell crushing opportunity where um, okay. the the, uh, the leverage with the, the shape of their mouth is a lot stronger in the back. Okay. So I'm sure I'd imagine they take a snail and kind of put it back back towards the rear of their mouth and then they bite down and oh, do it that way because they wouldn't get very far. Yeah, right. Poor little guy. You've seen, you know, <laughs> my fondness for snails. I love the little guys. So that one, that one oh, kind absolutely. of broke my heart a little bit. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. So my last little fact about them is that they are nocturnal, nomadic, and optimistic. Op- Jesus. They are nocturnal, nomadic, and opportunistic, so they will move on from an area if their food or water source runs out, meaning that they won't, like, overgraze an area. They they don't pose a danger to, like, decimating something. If it starts to run out, they're just going to go ahead and move on, and then it their has the opportunity to grow back. What do they call it? Nature's Nature's nomad. They're a yeah. nature's nomad. They move, they move and migrate constantly. So. Yes. And it's funny. I'm glad that we got to touch base specifically about opossums and possums because there's a lot to break down there. Yeah. And for those listening, if you feel like there was either a um, a species that wasn't covered that you think should make it on a future episode, I'd, I'd, I'd imagine we have enough misunderstood animals on this earth to do quite a few more episodes yeah or even i keep coming up mis- with things i want to turn into a series <laughs> absolutely i just they pop into my head constantly but anyway if you um if you know of a species that you guys want us to do some research about or hell even a breed if there's yeah. a specific dog or cat or horse breed or cattle breed that's more under misunderstood than you feel like the rest of them let us know you know perhaps yeah perhaps write us in and um maybe we can um learn a little bit and teach to others and And send us those ideas and stories and whatnot to all for animals podcast at gmail.com so thank you guys for tuning in with us and we'll see you next week you guys take care